I've asked my son Peter to read our scripture verse before we begin today. The scripture, if you want to follow along, is on page uh, 1118, but it's Romans 3, uh, verses 21 through 31. Yes, I did ask you to do that. So, because <laughs> it's just all so good, I couldn't. I didn't know where to stop. So, go ahead, Pete. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law. No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Thank you, Peter. Uh, before I begin, I'd just like to extend a thank you again to the elders for the opportunity to speak and uh, share from God's Word with you today. I have the distinction of being the last fill-in, and quite possibly the least, before Blake uh, resumes his uh, place, his proper place in the pulpit, and I think I can express everybody's uh, feelings here that we're just really excited to have you back up here, uh, Blake. And I also just want to draw our attention to the fact that I don't know about you, but the last few weeks, 10 weeks, how long has it been? Uh, the ministry of this church has really quite remarkably carried on seamlessly. And rather than being, uh, indicative of the fact that we don't need you, uh, is that I think it's indicative of the fact that you've done such an amazing job at shepherding this church and equipping this body for the work of ministry. And I think of uh, Paul when he, he went around to some of his churches and he would say, what would be my, my glory, my delight when I stand before the Savior? Isn't it all of you? And Blake, just thank you. I think that is, uh, that's going to be your word, too, someday. So thank you for, for... And thank you to the elders. They've done an amazing job of communicating, uh, of keeping the ship upright. And uh, it's, it's just been, it's been really cool to be a part of and to see. Uh, please pray with me. 
Lord, I am, I am acutely aware that apart from your spirit, the words that Peter read today are nothing more than just empty words. That the words that I am about to share, apart from your spirit, Lord, are, are empty words. They're meaningless words. So, Lord, we just pray today that you would have mercy on us and open our hearts and our ears and our minds to hear what you would have to say to us today. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to ask you this question. Do you get excited when you hear that the sermon topic is about doctrine? <laughs> your labs are telling. Or does the thought of it cause your eyes to glaze over and your minds wander? You know, there's, there's always a risk when you mention that word doctrine in the pulpit. For a lot of people, it's a, a sleep-inducing tonic. And it, it was that one Sunday for the old deacon who fell asleep in the back row during one such sermon on doctrine. And the pastor, as he was going on, sensed a need to re- reinvigorate the faithful. So he, he said, I've got to go to something familiar. So he, he went to the parable of Jesus about the two roads, the two paths. And he said, I've got to cut to the chase here. So he said very seriously to the congregation, everyone who has chosen to walk on the narrow way has chosen to stand for life. But to everyone who has chosen the wide way, the path of destruction, and he raised his voice with emphasis, has chosen to stand with the devil. And with that, the old deacon jumps to his feet. He rubs his eyes and he looks around and he says, Pastor, I don't know what we're voting on. But it looks like you and me are the only ones in favor. (laughs) Mark Jones, in his essay, Why Living for God Depends on Good Theology, writes this on the importance of doctrine. For those who wish to live a godly life, good theology is not an option, since we are sanctified by the truth. The scriptures teach that sound doctrine and godly living go hand in hand. Sound doctrine provides the foundation for godly living. In the doctrine we are covering today, when properly believed, when properly understood, when properly applied to our lives, is nothing short of life transforming. This doctrine is the doctrine of free justification by faith. We're going to cover these three points. Why we need it. What is it? And how it transforms our lives. Now, at first glance, the casual observer of the Bible might think that the Bible is nothing more than just a disconnected, collection of narratives, uh, a haphazardly thrown together book about 
stories, histories, maybe a little love poetry thrown in there for good measure. But we all know, right, that the, there is a story arc to the Bible. There is a, an overarching theme. There is a, a thread that ties the whole book together. And that story is God revealing his plan for humanity. It begins with creation. It builds through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, through the law and the prophets, and it finds its culmination at the cross of Jesus. And right here, smack dab in the middle of Romans chapter 3, Paul explains what the climax of this story is. Verse 27 begins, But now, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, have testified. And this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is declaring that something has happened for the first time in human history. That God has provided for us a path of justification that is so radical and unlike anything any other religion has ever taught. And it is this doctrine that makes Christianity distinct from all other religions. It is this doctrine that is at the very heart of the gospel. And it is the story of God's grace toward humanity. And it reaches its culmination at the cross of Christ. It is a righteousness, a justification given freely to us by grace. Now, in our culture, the words justification and righteousness especially outside the church, are rarely used or even understood. If anything, the term righteousness carries negative connotations. But I like the way Tim Keller explains it. And he does it this way in order to, to make it more accessible to our modern, uh, our modern ears. He says that righteousness is a validating performance record that gives you access into areas of influence that you otherwise couldn't reach. Or let me put that another way. There is a record of achievements that when earned will give you certain privileges and access. For example, when you complete a course of study, say as, do as a doctor or a teacher or a pharmacist, your academic performance record assuming you studied hard, buys you access into your chosen field. Without that certificate or that license, you have no access. Or if you are applying for a job, what do you do? You pull out your resume and your vocational record proves that you are worthy of that job. And this is the way it works in the world. You need a validating performance record to get access. And in fact, every religion in every culture believes it is the same with God. 
namely that I work and my work approves me before God. When my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then I can approach God. And why? Because I've earned it. God owes me something. I've done my part. And now it's up to God to do his. And if we're honest, unfortunately, many within the Christian church operate this way also. And even ourselves, if we dig deep, we'll see that we are guilty of the same attitude. There is often a work beneath our work, a work of self-justification that we need to see and repent of. This work is rarely obviously and it's it's usually not easily seen. So let's dig a little deeper into what I mean by this work beneath the work. In the Gospels, Jesus continually confronts the heart attitude behind people's behavior. And have you noticed it is most often with the morally upright and the religious? Think of the, brother, uh, of the elder brother, for example, in the parable of the prodigal son. Outwardly, he was a model son. He's obedient. He does everything the father asks him to. And yet, he insults his father by not going into the feast. Why? Because he's incensed that his brother has been forgiven. I've obeyed you all these years, he protests, and you've never once killed the fatted calf for me. What is he saying to the father? He's saying, you owe me. He doesn't want the father. He wants the father's things. There is a work of self-justification going on beneath his obedience. Or the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus seeking and he asks this question. What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus says, obey the commandments. To which he replies, all these commands I have kept since I was a boy. What one more thing must I do? He asks. And Jesus says, Give away all that you have to the poor. And the man goes away sad. Why? Because his wealth is not just his wealth. It's his justification. That we are justified by our works. The work beneath the work is the default mode of the human heart. And without an understanding of justification by faith alone and God's imputed righteousness, we cannot fully embrace the glorious gift of grace. God's unmerited favor becomes merited in our minds and we begin to think that God owes us something. So what's the antidote? But now, Paul teaches, God provides a way, a path for justification apart from our moral performance record. And this is the what of justification. The heart of the gospel is a God 
who provides the moral performance record that validates us and sets us apart. Not convinced? Well, you might be saying and and thinking, you know, maybe misguided religious people are working for their justification. They're kind of messed up anyway, and they have all that guilt and low self-esteem going on. Of course they're striving for (laughs) self-justification, but not me. I'm not like that. I don't believe I'm working for my self-justification. No, sorry. Self-justification is not just for the religiously misguided. Everyone is struggling, struggling for validation. The theologian uh, Sylvester Stallone in the movie Rocky was asked by his girlfriend Adrian, Rocky, why is it so important for you to go the distance in the boxing match? And Rocky replies, I got to go the distance so I know I'm not a bum. He has to justify himself. In the movie Chariots of Fire, the Olympic runner Harold Abrams says before his race, and now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. John D. Rockefeller, when asked how much money is enough, said, one more million dollars and I'll be okay. If we are honest with ourselves, we will admit that we all seek justification and validation. We do it with our jobs. If we don't perform well in our jobs, we feel like vocational failures. We might do it with our families. When our kids screw up, and they do, or aren't living the way we want them to, we feel like parental failures. Our political affiliation, not just our political affiliation, it's our justification. Our wealth is not just wealth, it's our justification. We all seek justification somewhere or in something because we innately need it. But the justification we need is not something the world can give. So what does this free justification look like? What is it? In the book of Romans, when Paul speaks of our righteousness, not a position we earn based on our behavior. It is a status that is bestowed on us by faith. Let me repeat that. Our righteousness is not a position we earn based on our behavior. It is a status that is bestowed on us by faith. I think it's important to note that the justification that God gives is more than just forgiveness. One theologian wrote, forgiveness says you are free to go. Justification says you may come. God is saying to us, come into all my fullness, come into all my beauty, come into my rest. For years, I've operated like this. I ask forgiveness for the things I've done and God forgives me. 
But then it's up to me. I've got to be really good now. I've really got to obey God now or God's just not going to be pleased with me. God forgives, but the righteous part is up to me. I didn't understand righteousness by faith. There was a continual work going on beneath my work. God not only forgives us our sins, but he changes our status. Giving us Jesus' perfect performance record. His righteousness. In the TV show, NCSI, there's a story of an old World War II vet who believes that during the war, he murdered one of his fellow soldiers. And racked by years of guilt, he finally turns himself in to the police and he makes a confession. The police alert the military authorities and the military immediately sends a lawyer and two Marines to arrest. They march aggressively into the detective's office and the lawyers harshly inform him that you're under arrest. Then quietly, one of the detectives pulls back the frail old man's lapel on his jacket, revealing the Congressional Medal of Honor. Instantly, these big Marines snap to attention and salute. And even the lawyer snaps to attention in salute. You see, the Medal of Honor has changed his status. And this is how God sees us. Not only has he given us, forgiven us for the murder, but he pins Jesus' Medal of Honor onto our chests. His performance record becomes ours. Paul explicitly says this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. In being found in him, Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And here's the kicker. Not only did we not do anything to earn this, but we were fighting for the other side. And it was Jesus who fought the battles for us. Jesus did the heroic deeds. And Jesus died the violent death. Jesus was the propitiation, Paul says. And through faith, God gives us his righteousness. He sees us as his perfect, beloved son. Amen? Crazy though, right? Paul writes in Philippians 4, However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. You see, God doesn't justify the morally upright or even the sometimes upright. We don't have to screw our hearts into some form of moral goodness and then have faith. No, God justifies the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For us. Where then is boasting? 
Paul says it's excluded. This doctrine alone caused C.S. Lewis to write, I know Christianity is true because no one can make this up. But people have a problem with grace, don't they? They contend, grace isn't fair. I had a friend once who I was sharing the gospel with and he said this sad statement. If this is the way God works, then I don't want anything to do with him. Others contend, if I really believe what the Bible teaches about justification by grace, then I would have absolutely no incentive to live a good life. Are they right? Does grace remove all incentive to live a good life? This brings me to my final point. How does justification transform us? How does it cause us to live a life of obedience? And what does the transforming work of justification look like in a believer's life? First, we go from living out of fear or cold obedience or worse, indifference, to living a life out of love and deep gratitude. It's ironic. We don't work less, as some contend. We work and live for different reasons. It has taken years for this concept to take root in my heart. I intellectually believe free justification by faith, but I continually find myself doing the work beneath the work. There are times I have fully internalized my status in Christ and I'm living by faith. And then, unfortunately, it's time to go to sleep. I go to bed. I wake up. And while I was sleeping, someone has come along and hit the reset button back to the default mode of works and fear. I think it was Bill Bright who said, we wake up every morning selfish. And during the day, a situation arises or my circumstances change and I find myself having to repent and preach the gospel to myself again and again. The other day, I was with a group of friends and uh, I won't name any names, but Blake asked us what our favorite movie is. And one of my favorite shows is the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers and In that series, they depict Easy Company of the 101st Airborne during World War II. And one of the more compelling aspects of the series is the interviews they did with the actual soldiers that they wrote the series about. Now in their 70s and 80s, they are asked questions about their experiences. And after one episode, they are asked this simple question. How did you deal with the overwhelming fear of battle? And what do you think it was? Their responses fascinated me. Most, if not all of the soldiers, had the same response. In the heat of battle, it wasn't patriotism that motivated these soldiers. It wasn't the thought 
of loved ones back home. It was the fear of letting down their buddy. In the heat of battle, the fear of disapproval was greater than the fear of death. If young men could run across minefields, go through a hail of bullets out of fear of disapproval, then don't you think that many, if not most of all of us, and our actions are motivated by the same fear? When I find myself personally getting defensive or irritated or angry in my relationships with others, this is almost always a sign that I am living in the fear of disapproval. A good question to ask ourselves is this. Am I doing what I do out of fear or out of love? We know that we are being transformed by the gospel when we are no longer acting or obeying out of fear. The Apostle John writes that perfect love casts out fear. And when we put our faith in God's perfect love and the imputed righteousness of Christ, then our obedience goes from an obedience that is motivated by fear and guilt to one motivated by love. And do you know what obedience motivated by love and gratitude becomes? Worship. It is the fruit of saving faith. And this brings glory to God. A second sign we know we are being transformed by grace is when we take our sins less seriously and we see our good works as bad. Yeah, you heard me right. We know we are being transformed by grace when we take our sins less seriously and we see our good works as bad. Now, before the elders rush the stage and drag me off kicking and screaming, full disclosure, I am not saying our sins aren't serious. They are so serious that Jesus died a violent and horrific death for them. But Pharisees are very concerned about their sins. They confess their sins. They feel horrible about their sins. And they go to all extremes to correct and avoid them. In a twisted way, they take their sins so seriously, they become self-centered. Jonathan Edwards wrote to a young man in his congregation who was struggling with the guilt of his own sins in an unhealthy fixation on his own wretchedness. It is true, Edwards wrote, that you must take your sins very seriously. But you are improperly affected by them. You express a low opinion of yourself, which is right to do. But you express too low an opinion of the person and work of your Redeemer, which is certainly wrong. Are your sins bigger than Jesus' redemptive work? Do you spend too much time confessing and fixating on your own sinfulness and no, no time resting in the finished work of Christ? Furthermore, we also need to take a serious look at our boasting.
In what ways do you justify yourself? One sign that you're a Christian is that a Christian repents for the reasons for doing his good works. The paradox is, is that when we see our good works as good, then they are bad. But when we see our good works as bad, they actually become good. Did you get that? Let me repeat that. When we see our good works as good, then they are bad. But when we see our good works as bad, they become good. C.S. Lewis wrote, when a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. When a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. We are called to live a lifestyle of repentance. And our repentance needs to be for not only the morally objectionable things that we do, but for the good things that we do to earn our justification. We must repent of the reasons behind why we do the good things in the first place. Look at the elder brother again in the prodigal story. He didn't need to repent of his disobedience. He needed to repent of the reasons for his obedience, of using his obedience as a means of justification in his father's eyes. When we realize that all our good deeds are powerless to save and we're saved by grace, then our obedience is motivated by love in an overwhelming sense of gratitude. We experience a spiritual rest and a freedom to truly obey. Obedience goes from being a have to to a want to. If you love me, Jesus said, you will want, my insertion, to obey my commands. Finally, the doctrine of free justification by faith causes us to live with a deep sense of wonder. A Christian is someone who grasps how wide and how deep is the love of God. And he puts their trust in this only. Excuse me. The Christian says, wait, me, a Christian? Impossible, a miracle. You know, as I thought about my own coming to faith, and, and Mark brought this up in Sunday school today, as we thought, think back on how the Lord revealed himself to, our, to us, and I was sitting there, I was like, here I was, mid-coast Maine, small liberal church, Never heard the gospel, and somehow I came to faith. That's a miracle. That is a miracle. One illustration of what this transformation looks like. Remember Harold Abrams in the Chariots of Fire, who ran to justify his existence? Well, in a contrasting scene, the, the hero, Eric Little, says, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. In comparing the two runners, Eric Geiger writes, 
Harold Abrahams was weary even when he rested. And Eric Little was rested even when he was exerting himself. Why? Because there's a work beneath our work that we really need from. It's the work of self-justice. You see, Abraham's sought satisfaction and joy in the race. And it's always eluding him. Little finds satisfaction in Christ and he experiences his joy as he runs. Two artists paint a similar picture. Seeks joy in the painting and they're never quenched. The other seeks joy in God. And they feel his pleasure as he paints. Two parents raise their kids. One seeks joy in her children's achievements. And she builds her life on their successes. If they misbehave, she is crushed as her identity takes a blow. Another parent finds her in God and offers her children to him no matter what the outcome as she parents, she feels his joy and pleasure. The doctrine of free justifica- justification by grace says, you are Christ's beauty. And when you make him your beauty, you will find rest. You are his treasure. And when you make him your treasure, then your soul will be satisfied. And you will experience the peace of God. That passes all understanding. And you will find rest from the work that is beneath your work. Christian, this is good news. Amen.